Hi everyone, in this podcast episode, I'll be talking about the topic of how to deal with unhealthy dynamic with your parents and your family. So this uh, podcast episode was actually inspired by me reading this book titled Toxic Parents, How to Overcome Their Hurtful Legacy and Reclaim Your Life. Now, when I first came across this book title written by this renowned therapist lecturer author called Susan Forward, I actually questioned myself, like, do I actually want to read this book? I feel like, you know, I don't come from a background that my parents have struggled. I don't have parents that struggle with substance abuse, or, and I feel like they have ne- they have not like physically, emotionally, or psychologically abused me. So I felt like you know, do I actually want to open this book and read it? Like, what kind of value would I get from this book? And I realized something important is that um, because Susan Forward, the the author, she's a pretty much internationally renowned therapist, and she's also had her own private practice and was a consultant to various Southern California psychiatric and medical facilities, she has something to offer in terms of her insight into what she has observed in a private practice over a period of years. So her book was basically telling that, you know, parents are human beings, they make mistakes, they fall short from time to time. Unfortunately, sometimes when they fall short in certain areas, right, uh, this mistakes that they fall short of, um, it does have an impact on their children emotionally. So this book is about things that have happened within the family dynamic and how do we actually take action to actually resolve them. So there's a lot of case studies that's being featured in this book and the case studies actually explains the issues that children face as a byproduct of their family system as, and as a byproduct of the way their parents actually navigated the parent and child dynamic. So I feel like this book, even though, you like, let's say you came from a background that didn't suffer from substance abuse, you didn't suffer from your parents like physically, emotionally, or psychologically abusing you, there's still some value in actually reading the book itself because it'll teach you like how do you navigate the family dynamic, what kind of belief system that your family dynamic has imprinted in you subconsciously, and how do you actually end up manifesting this subconscious belief system in your day-to-day life as an adult. And I believe the power happens when when you can realize that your actions of today, right, is governed by belief system that's held by the past. So if we want to go back to the root of what happened in the past, right, sometimes involves us studying our family dynamics and also studying like the way our parents actually parented us and not like pushing all the blame to our parents, but you know, taking the personal responsibility to to want to find the solutions that we can then implement in our own lives and become a better member of society. So, now I'll start with a few concepts that I've picked up from this book which I found very interesting is this. The reason why people should study family dynamics and how their parent and child relationship has panned out is because our family system is the one that actually constitutes an entire reality when we're growing up and when we're young. So as a child, what you did was you just absorb what was given to you by your parents and you also make decisions as a child about who you are and how you're supposed to show up in the world. And that is how, that is through your family system. So for the purposes of the podcast discussion, right, I will say the, the term toxic parents and I believe toxic parents, I will reframe it as people that have given you belief systems that do not support you in the long term. Uh, for example, belief systems like I can't trust anybody, I'm not worth caring about or I never amount to anything. Now these belief systems, I feel causes impact in people's life because people act based on how they believe but subconsciously sometimes they may not even understand 
what are they believing in the first place? But they constantly reap the consequences of certain actions that, you know, logically to them doesn't make any sense at all. So the reason why you would also study your family dynamic is because you have to acknowledge that your parents had parents also. So the way they parented you was basically like a hand-me-down system throughout the entire family history. So from multiple generations before your parents, right, they've been passing down belief systems, feelings, rules, interactions that's been passed down, passed down, passed down from ancestors right up to your parents and up to you. So when you observe this entire family system, right, if none of your family system had been able to question and change those belief systems, unfortunately, it gets passed down. But the, the, the good side or the good news is that, you know, once you begin to study your family system, your parent and child dynamic, you can then have the capacity to, 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 to choose for yourself. Do you want to still believe in what your parents have told you? Or do you want to uh, not accept those beliefs and then go on to choose more empowering belief system that can help you in your day-to-day life. So this is the first two reasons why you know someone should study their family dynamics and how their parent and child relationship has panned out in their entire life. And also I believe is because as a child, right, you you are children are, I think are on brutally honest. They don't have filters and sometimes they can pick BS a lot faster than adults. I think, um, and also, the, the, but the problem with that is that their parents, right, when they're growing up, parents actually plant mental emotional seeds in children, and these seeds end up growing up as the children grows up. And in families, there are seeds of guilt, uh, sorry, in seeds of love, respect, and independence, but in other families, there are things like seeds of fear, obligation, and guilt. And parents are deficient from time to time, and no parent can be emotionally available all the time. But the question is, what seeds were planted in a person as a child, as a child, right, that then ends up manifesting? So if you can now go back and trace back to the root of how th- those seeds were planted in your psyche as a child, then you have the capacity to, to really uh, ask yourself whether you want those belief systems to still continue in your life or you want to choose something that's much more empowering. And I think the first lesson I learned through this book was denial. And what I mean by denial is as a child, right, sometimes you go through things in your life that you have pointed out and you have observed. And because you did not have a filter and you're quite honest, you know, you pointed out a situation for what it was. But now, if you had parents that actually tried to minimize or even negate or even like deny what you're experiencing, what it does is it teaches you that as a child that you can't even deal with the reality as you see it you still have to go through somebody else's eyes and filter for them to then validate what you experience. As, as a result, I think when, when people grow up to be adults, right, sometimes we question ourselves as in we understand the situation, but we constantly go through a lot of people to validate what we are experiencing. And that, I think, comes a level of problem because when you're not able to trust your intake of a situation, based on what you observe, right, like first-person observation, then it becomes a situation where now you you don't even know, like, how to deal with it, how to deal with things, or you're still waiting for permission from other people to teach you how to deal with things. For example, let's say something bad has to happen to you as a child, right, but then your parents said, like, oh, it's not that bad, lah, or it didn't actually happen. So unfortunately, over a period of time, because your parent denied your own reality, so now you begin to realise that because you don't want to go against your parents, 
and you believe like for everybody their parents are like gods to them when they're children because their parents are people who give them uh, they will provide for them and also are some people that they have to depend on until they reach the stage of maybe being an adult like 18 or 21 years old so at the same time you kind of don't want to deny what your parents are telling you but at the same time you have this conflict internally of you realizing that something is not right here so when you have parents that actually deny your reality or actually minimize it or say that it didn't actually happen, after a period of time, it teaches you that you shouldn't even trust your own intuition or your even take of, the, of what has happened to you and then you should just suppress it and then you should just pretend it didn't happen and sometimes you, you should just minimize it. But what happens with that is that when you deny a lot of things that have happened to you, it ends up building up like a pressure cooker. So if you think about it, denial is like a lid on the pressure cooker, right? Things are boiling, boiling, boiling internally. But if you, the longer you deny, 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 that means you're pushing the pressure cooker, right? The, pre- the lid on the pressure cooker. After a while, it's only a period of time where the pressure cooker actually explodes. And then when it usually explodes is when there's an emotional crisis and then you may feel like, oh crap, like, you know, what the hell had just happened? And which is why I believe that Denial system is, denial actually is a very strong psychological thing that that happens for people to preserve a situation. But you may actually want to to begin to take corrective action into like sort of opening up the denial lid and letting the truth or emotional stuff or whatever you have been repressing to come to the surface. And when you do that in a structured way, uh, and when you do it bit by bit, right, what you're doing is you're slowly letting your feelings and, and the situation, your feelings and reactions to situations that happened to you as a child to come down to the surface and you're not building it up. You're not containing it or you're not repressing it and then thinking it's going to just disappear and it actually doesn't disappear. It actually manifests out and now, now I think that's why it's so important to actually study family dynamics and also parent-child relationships because things, a lot of things will happen to us as children but if we don't take the time or effort to acknowledge and, and now we try to have more authentic truth and, and deal and acknowledge the situations that happen to us as children, what we're doing is just we're stuffing things down with a denial lid and we're hoping one day these things will go away, but it doesn't. I think in actual fact what happens is that those things that we have not acknowledged as children or we repressed, it will end up boiling up to the surface, but then it spills over to our interaction with our current day-to-day people that we're dealing with like our friends, our family members, our colleagues, society and community. I think that's why it is so important, I think, to actually spend the time, I think, to do the work when it deals, when it, co- when it comes to understanding your family dynamic and understanding a parent-to-child relationship. Because in a parent, in a family dynamic, right, what usually happens is that families actually have their own belief system and they have their own rules. So belief system is like, sorry, rules is basically like a yes or no or do or don't do kind of thing about belief system. So sometimes in your family, right, there's spoken rules about how to navigate your interaction as a family. For example, they can be like, you know, spend every Christmas at home or don't talk back to your parents. So because these rules are very out in the open, you know, we as adults can challenge them and, and, you know, over a period of time, we can navigate those rules and we can uh, say, you know, we agree to disagree, but maybe we should have some flexibility there. But I think what is much more scary is that if you're f- in your family, if there's unspoken family rules, then these are unseen covert rules that, that exist. For example, it can be things like, don't be more successful than your father. Don't be more happier than your mother. 
Don't lead your own life. Don't ever stop needing me. Don't abandon me. And I think the, the scary part about understanding a fi- family dynamic is realising for the first time, right, that maybe unspoken family rules that is governing your family dynamic, but you're just not conscious to them. But it's starting to affect your life as an adult. So I think that's why um, it becomes important to then, to then actually take the time out to actually do the work when it comes to understanding your family dynamic and also understanding there are probably mechanisms within your family that has been employed by your parents. Uh, uh, these are, for example, coping mechanisms such as denial, where, you know, denial is where your parents actually says that nothing is wrong or something was wrong but it won't happen again. So what denial does is that it rationalizes or relabels destructive behavior and then it hides it. So what happens is, if you think about a carpet, right, you got a problem, instead of dealing it and acknowledging it and taking corrective actions, what you're doing is you're sweeping the problem under the carpet. And as we all know, the carpet can hold only so much of problems before it becomes Mount Everest and then, you know, now you got the now you got a huge problem on your hand. Because all this while you've been denying a problem, you know, actually been not addressing it or facing it. And now you got Mount Everest <laughs> of a problems underneath the carpet. So that's usually when I think like things come to the surface and then you realize that, oh, there's a huge mountain that I now have to deal with. Now, the second coping mechanism that parents can sometimes use is projection. So projection is uh, two-faced. Um, parents may accuse the, chil- the child of the very inequ- inadequacies that they suffer from, or they may, build, they may blame the child for the toxic behaviours that result from the inadequacies. For example, right, um, let's say in a family where there's an alcoholic mother, Know, this alcoholic mother will blame her child for causing her happiness, that unhappiness that drives her to drink. So what, it, what this example would be like, okay, your parents have issues of their own, but instead of actually dealing with their own issues, they now say that you are the cause of their own issues. As a result, sometimes now children feel like, like they are the responsible for the unhappy dynamic in their household, for example. Now we move on to the third coping mechanism, which is sabotage. So in the family, right, if there's very severe dysfunctional behavior going around, for example, people having substance abuse who are violent or ill, other families actually will assume the roles of rescuers and caretakers. So what happens in the family dynamic is that it's always this balance of weak and strong, good and bad, and sick and healthy. After a period of time, right, it causes this kind of role to play within the family that people end up playing the, the role of a rescuer or a savior. And then they take the same role themselves and translate it to the interactions with other people. For example, friendships, relationships, where they recreate this role that they have been experiencing with their family with uh, those relationships outside of their family itself. Another, um, another coping mechanism families could have is that triangling. So basically, in a family, um, sometimes one parent actually enlists their child as a confidant or ally against another parent. And the child now becomes unhealthy, unhealthy triangle that they are being pulled apart from the pressure to choose sides. For example, let's say one of your parents complains to you a lot about the other parent. Now, as a child, you kind of don't realize that sometimes you should not be put in the middle by your parent. And sometimes children feel like they're obligated to listen. Uh, unfortunately, I think what happens is that when you get pushed in the middle between your parents' issues, right? Sometimes you feel stuck, you feel drained, and now you wonder why you don't have the capacity to, to emotionally show up for other people. Because you're constantly being used as somebody 
to provide emotional comfort or as a person that your parent discharges their emotional issues to you. And I think this is something I believe will be common in families. Uh, unfortunately, I think parents sometimes don't understand the impact of what they're doing. Uh, where in, in Asian society, I think that parents generally feel that they cannot express their issues with their partner to other people, like their friends or their family members, because they do not want they do not want to wash the dirty linen. And um, perhaps there is this misconception that they don't know who else they, they, they can talk to, and they may not even realize that they have the they could have this opportunity to talk to another adult, but in the context of a counselor or therapist that could then support them and help them um, perhaps go on their own journey. Instead, their child ends up being the therapist. Unfortunately, what goes on with that is that the child feels like they, they naturally want to help their parent, but when they start to listen to a bunch of stuff that's to do with one parent and the other parent, right, they get stuck in the middle, and then they can't feel like... They become a, essentially a dumping ground emotion dumping ground and the parent actually ends up don't like feeling a relief as in someone has to listen to them someone can listen to them but they actually don't take action to actually solve their problem so that's one aspect another coping mechanism within families is actually keeping secrets so certain secrets that have happened in a family generation right they can be keeping it keeping it keeping it and suddenly for some reason in the next generation this secret becomes manifesting for example it could be substance abuse it could be mental health issues it could be so many, so many things that happen in the family cycle, but because no one actually shared it with the next generation, everybody thought that as long as you keep it away, it's not going to, you know, infect the next generation. But I think that doesn't happen, lah. You know, for some reason, certain family cycles ends up repeating over and over again because there has never been a clear cut communication and a clear cut addressing of what has actually happened within the family. So basically, those are basic coping mechanisms that quote-unquote toxic parents employ and if you start to read this book right and if you let's say come from a family that doesn't deal with substance abuse or even uh, physical mental emotional psychological abuse from parents you still can have value in this book itself but the value is going to come from different aspects or concepts that have been taught to you from this book and it's probably going to be something that you will take it on your own so Two people can be reading the same book, but the lessons that they take from this book is going to be completely different depending on where they are in their life and what they started to observe that happens with their own family dynamic and with their own self when it comes to dealing with other people. Um, another concept I've read from this book was um, the concept of forgiveness. Now, because Susan Forward was a uh, therapist and she had many clients that come up to her with multiple uh, things that they want to discuss and resolve and also uh, come to terms with, she came to this inter interesting observation, especially when it comes to family dynamics. The word forgiveness, right, tends to be a little bit misunderstood uh, by mainstream. And I think is that she defined it as forgiveness means there are two facets, two aspects of it, which is you give up the need for revenge and you give up, uh, you absolve the guilty party of any responsibility. So what she says was that, I'm going to quote you the verbatim like sentence and sentence I give my two cents. She said that revenge is a normal but negative motivation. It bogs you down in obsessive fantasies about striking back to get satisfaction. It creates a lot of frustration and unhappiness. It works against your emotional well-being. Despite how sweet revenge may feel for a moment, it keeps stirring up the emotional chaos between you and your parents, wasting precious time and energy. Letting go of your need for revenge is difficult, but it is a clearly healthy step. 
Now, I agree with that is that um, when we have uh, a lot of issues in the side of us that we feel like we, we are justified and we don't want to forgive, I think forgiveness is a highly touted keyword that's being thrown around mainstream society, but I think not a lot of people understand what it means. And, and maybe from her perspective, she can clearly delineate that forgiveness means two things. You give up the need for revenge only because you, want, you don't want to spend your energy like harboring all these revenge plots and hurting yourself because the, the energy that you spend on these revenge plots could be energy that could be used by yourself to better serve your own growth. So instead of giving energy to something that, that you keep on burning, right? Why not use it for yourself and, and, and begin to look at aspects of life when you can actually grow? The second part of forgiveness is absolving the guilty part of the guilty party of responsibility. So in this particular point, she says like, you know, the other facet of forgiveness was not as clear-cut. I felt there was something wrong with unquestionably absolving someone of their rightful responsibility, particularly if they had severely mistreated an innocent child. For example, why in the world should you pardon a father who terrorized and battered you, who made your childhood a living hell? How are you supposed to overlook the fact that you had encountered all those things as a child and... and and sh the more she thought about it, the more she realized that, you know, this particular um, facet of forgiveness, which is trying to absolve someone of the things that they've done to you in the past, right, could be another form of denial. For example, if I forgive you, we can pretend what happened wasn't so terrible. And then she realized that in the practice, right, this aspect of forgiveness could be actually preventing a lot of people from getting on with their lives. Because uh, according to her words, she said like, one of the most dangerous things about forgiveness is that it undercuts your ability to let go of your pent-up emotions. How can you acknowledge your anger against a parent whom you have already forgiven? Responsibility can go only one of two places, outwards onto the people who have hurt you and inwards into yourself. Someone's got to be responsible. So you may forgive your parents but end up hating yourself all the more in exchange. And she also noticed that many of her clients that rush to forgiveness to avoid the much painful work of therapy, they believe that by forgiving, they could find a shortcut to feeling better. For example, several of her clients clung to their fantasies, all I have to do is forgive and I will be healed. I will have a wonderful mental health. Everybody's going to love everybody. We'll, go, we'll hug a lot and sing Kumbaya and we we'll finally be happy. Unfortunately, what clients all too often discover is that the empty promise of forgiveness has merely set them up for bitter disappointment. Some of them experienced a rush of well-being, but it didn't last because nothing had really changed in the way they felt or in their family interactions itself. Now, she goes on to say that people can forgive toxic parents, but they should do that at the conclusion, not at the beginning of their emotional house cleaning. People need to get angry about what happened to them they need to grieve over the fact that they never had the kind of parental love that they yearned for or the kind of ways uh, they, they wish their, parent, their parents had showed up for them. They need to stop diminishing or discounting the damage that was done to them. Too often, forgive and forget means pretend it didn't happen. Now, my thoughts about this particular paragraph is this. Um, when she said this particular keyword of why people should be very careful with the concept of forgiveness, is because depending on our own individual family dynamics and what has been done to us by our parents to us as a child, 
Sometimes you really have to process the emotion before you can begin to forgive somebody. But the thing that happens in pop culture, like my through my own personal observation, maybe my own bias, I keep on hearing that people say forgive, 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 forgive. But what if that thing that you adopt as a solution is not really your final solution? Is that maybe the sequence of when you give the forgiveness, it should be after you have done your own emotional work, you've addressed those feelings, you've come to terms with those feelings, and then you can choose say, maybe I forgive this person, and this forgiveness has to be uh, on an individual basis. So for some people, they can forgive their parents in the sense that they will choose to maintain relationships with their parents but maybe have boundaries. Some people may say, I forgive my parents but I do not want to may remain in contact with my parents because I feel that um, certain things that I've addressed with them has not been listened to and they've not actually wanted to change and the longer I stay in those relationships and interactions with them, I'm actually hurting myself. So the, the definition of forgiveness, I think, really does depend on each individual's family dynamic and also what has happened to them and also how their parents have been able to then uh, try to navigate relationship with them as one, once the children have come up to the surface and bring out, like discuss certain things that happen in their family. And then, you know, it's, it's very much dependent. So the next um, section that she actually talks about in this particular chapter about forgiveness is this. Putting the responsibility where it re realistically belongs, squaring your parents, does not give you the license to excuse all your self-defeating behavior by saying it's all their fault. So what actually is this is that, you know, uh, just because something has happened to your childhood with your parents, right, it doesn't mean that you can now go on a rampage, indulge in all sorts of behaviors that doesn't help you. But what you need to do is that as an adult in relationship with my parents, I'm responsible for being a separate individual from my parents, looking honestly at my relationship with them, facing the truth about my childhood, having the courage to acknowledge the connections between the events of my childhood and my adult life, gaining the courage to express my real feelings with to them, confronting and diminishing the power of control and they have over my life, whether they are alive or dead, changing my own behavior when it's cruel, when it's cruel, hurtful, critical, or manipulative, finding the appropriate resources to help me heal my inner child, and also reclaiming my adult power and confidence. Now, I feel like this is a damn empowering affirmation. And basically what it's trying to say is that, you know, when you're dealing, the, when you're starting to do the work about dealing with your family dynamics and also your relationship with your parents, right? When you say that you're responsible for certain things, you're saying that, you know, I'm putting effort to understand the past, to sort of resolve it, and then going forward, I will hold myself accountable as an adult. I will not let the pain that has happened to me in the past dictate my current actions as an adult, and I will choose to hold myself to a, to a better um, standard in that sense. And also she said along with this chapter was that um, we are all afraid to face the truth about our parents. We are all afraid to acknowledge that we didn't get what we needed from them and that we're not going to get it now. But the alternative to confrontation is to actually live with those fears. If you avoid taking positive actions on your behalf, what you're doing is that you're reinforcing your beliefs of and feelings of helplessness and inadequacy. You're undermining your self-respect. And also this is why you know she actually listed down that the that affirmation which I just shared with you was this. The reason why we want to do our own work and change the nature of our family dynamic and the relationship that we have with our parents is because if we don't deal with our fear, our guilt, our anger at our parents, we are going to just take it on everybody in our life. Our partner, our friends, our co-workers, the society, community, you know. 
And I, and I think this is so important that we begin to acknowledge that what we don't address, we just pass it on to other people and that's, I think, not a very healthy thing to do. Now, when she has given enough reasons, I think, of why we want to begin to address our family dynamic and our relationship with our parents, she's also saying that we have the, the power, the strength and the capability to break the cycle. And what does it mean to break the cycle? Breaking the cycle means that we stop acting like a victim we stop acting like our abusive or inadequate parent, for example. We stop playing the helpless, dependent child on our partners, friends, colleagues, authority figures and parents. And once we get the help that we, ha- we can get and we started examining our family dynamics and our parent-child relationship, right? We begin to realize that when we're breaking the cycle, what we're doing is that we're protecting the next generation from toxic belief, rules and experiences that have coloured much of your childhood. So that what you're doing is that you're effectively changing the nature of your family interactions from generations year to come. And also, um, and a very important thing that she actually uh, outlined in the book was this. You can change without actually changing, you can change without actually changing your parents. Your well-being does not have to be dependent on your parents. You can overcome the traumas of your childhood and their power over you, your adult life, even if your parents stay exactly the same they've always been. You just have to commit yourself to doing the work. Now, I think this is a very strong statement which says that, you know, if we started to do our work on ourselves and maybe we want to share with our parents, right, let's say they don't have the kind of reaction that we want or maybe they are like in denial mode and they may not be able to have the capacity to actually respond the way we want to, I think it's still important to feel like we should still be doing the work on ourselves. And, and when we start to do the work on ourselves, we realize that we're not going to carry the baggage of what has happened to us in the past, but what we're going to do is we're going to show up better for ourselves. And as a result, everybody that has, has contact with you as a person, right? They're not experiencing the baggage of the past that you've experienced in your life. They're beginning to experience a more uh, person that's more integrated, a person that is now, that's not carrying the pain of the past and dishing it to people in the present as a result of what has happened to them in the past. So um, another factor which I think I learned in this particular book itself is two things. Uh, One of them is anger and one of them is grief. So basically she talked about the concept of anger in this book and it's about saying that in the context of a parent and child relationship or even a family dynamic, anger is actually an upsetting emotion. You may associate anger with abuse from your childhood. You may associate anger with people you saw out of control with rage. You may worry that you will seem ugly if you get angry and that people, other people will reject you. You may believe that good, loving people don't get angry or you have no right to get angry at the, per- at the parents who gave you life. Anger is also frightening. You may be afraid that you will destroy someone with your anger or that you will lose control or that you will be afraid that you will never be able to turn off your anger. And these fears are very real for all of us, but the fact remains. The things we are afraid will happen if we get angry are the very things that will have a good chance of happening if we don't. Now, she illustrates it by further elaborating. When you repress your anger, you may become depressed or abrasive and other people may reject you as surely as they would if you're openly angry with them. Repressed anger is unpredictable. It can explode at any time. When it does, it's often uncontrollable. Anger is always destructive unless it's managed, even especially if it has been allowed to fester beneath your conscious awareness. Adult children of 
toxic parents especially have a difficult time with their anger because they grew up in families where emotional re- expression was discouraged. Anger was only something that parents had the privilege of displaying. Now, now that she's gone on to say like why should you deal with emotions and acknowledge the family dynamic and how, for example, when you're starting to learn how to manage your family dynamic and learn how to manage your parent-child relationship, you may start to feel like all these emotions and anger are bubbling to the surface. And for some of us, we'd be like, like, what the hell? Like, when I'm doing personal work, right, isn't it supposed to make me feel better, not make me feel like all these kind of emotions? But I think it's, it's important to address when we feel anger, right? What does this actually mean? And also, the second step is that how do we begin to address anger? <coughs> now, we move on to ways that she shared in how to manage your anger. Giving yourself permission to be angry without making any judgment about your feelings. Anger is an emotion just as joy and fear are. It's neither right or wrong. It just is. It belongs to you. It's a part of what makes you human. Anger is also a signal telling you something's important. It may be telling you that your rights are being trampled, that you're being insulted or used, or that your needs are not being taken care of. Anger always means that something needs to change. So what you could do is to, to manage your anger in a safe way without blowing up at people is that you externalize your anger. You, you can choose to whack your pillows, yell at photographs of the people you're angry at, or have imaginary dialogues with them in your car or alone at home. You don't have to attack or verbally assault someone to express your anger. Because until you get your anger out in the open, you actually can't deal with it. And sometimes I think um, maybe in society we end up having this impression that anger is really bad or when we look at people who have finally expressed their anger it's usually people have repressed anger so much to the point where they blow up they blow up for like six months worth of anger in one that one second and we still see those devastating effects and that somehow makes us very scared to actually confront our own anger that's another uh, factor i guess and she goes on further to say this was that um, everybody has a tough time with anger and you won't get this mastery overnight. And women especially have been socialized not to show their anger. Women are allowed to cry, to mourn openly, to get depressed and to show tenderness, but anger is considered unbecoming to women in our society. They are attracted to partners who can act out their anger for them. In this way, they can discharge some of their repressed anger vicariously. Unfortunately, many of these men who get angry easily are also controlling and abusive. Now, this was the, when I read this particular paragraph, I was like, wow. Because the effect of you not addressing your own repressed anger sometimes has the impact of you searching for people that they are very expressive in terms of their anger, but unfortunately, it kind of backfires on you because, like, for example, your anger gets vicariously expressed to those people that are in your life, in your relationships particularly. But unfortunately, that comes along with that is that sometimes you may end up picking partners who are controlling and abusive. So this was, I think, the strong motivation for anyone that if they feel like they have a lot of repressed anger and they're trying to figure out like why should I even begin to deal with this, I think this is one of the bad, one of the side effects of not dealing with your repressed anger. You end up getting the situations with people and then you reenact what you can't express out. So in that sense, it's like kind of like so strange sometimes where sometimes you pick people in your life. And sometimes you pick people who are complete opposite of you. For example, let's say you have a tough time repressing your anger or dealing with anger, you end up picking someone who's very vocal. That person has no problems actually telling people off or actually setting their boundaries. So this is 
one thing that is quite interesting that we came across. And now we move down to the second portion of emotions when it comes to dealing with your family dynamic, which is grief. So she says this, um, it's essential to your well-being to deal with anger effectively. And when you first contact your anger, you will feel shaky and guilty much of the time. Be patient and hang in there. You won't stay angry forever. The only people who do so are the ones that won't admit their anger or use it to gain power by intimidating other people. Now, we move on to the grief portion. Grief is a normal, necessary reaction to loss. It doesn't have to be always the loss of life. You probably experienced a lot of tremendous losses in your childhood. For example, loss of good feelings about yourself, loss of feelings of safety, loss of trust, loss of joy and spontaneity, loss of nurturing respectful parents, loss of childhood, loss of innocence, loss of love. You need to identify your losses in order to experience your grief. You must work through these feelings to release your hold over you. Grief and anger are tightly intertwined. It's almost impossible for someone to exist, sorry, for one to exist without the other. Up until now, you may not have understood how extensive your emotional losses have been because grief is so painful. Most people will do anything to avoid it. Stepping around grief may elevate sad feelings for a while, but delayed grief comes back to get you sooner or later, sometimes when you least expect it. Many people don't grieve at the time of a loss because they're expected to be strong or they believe that they have to take care of everybody else. Now, she talks about the grieving process. The grieving process entails shock, rage, disbelief, and of course, sadness. There'll be times when the sadness seems never-ending. You may feel like as if you never stop crying. You may be preoccupied with your grief, and you may be even ashamed of it. Now she talks about men, which I think is also fair. Most men are less ashamed of getting angry than they are of expressing grief. Unlike women, men are, have considerably more cultural support for showing aggression and anger than for showing sadness or pain. Many men pay a terrible price in their physical and emotional well-being for the dehumanizing expectations of what we have about how to be a real man. Now, I can concur with this because I think lately in pop culture, I've been noticing that um, there's been a strong push for men to be open with their feelings. But I think what is particularly tricky about that pop culture shift is that we want men to be open with their feelings, but, but as a society, have we have the capacity yet to hold space for these men to be open with their feelings or we want men to be open with their feelings to the, ex to the extent of how they think about us so that we know how they actually think about us and so it's actually for our own use. It's actually not for them. Because I believe that when men are open with their feelings, right, ch chances more often than not, you realise that there's a lot of things that goes on in the mind of a guy that they don't tell to you, but once you hear it and if you don't ha have the capacity to receive it, you'll be like, hold up, like, don't tell me all this stuff, or like, like I need to like, go off somewhere, because I'm, I'm starting to realise that you have a lot of things that goes on in your life, and your thoughts, and your mind, that goes on unexpressed. So that is one thing I realised that, you know, this is a particularly important thing when it comes to asking men, right, to be more open with their feelings. It's also, we as a society have to equip ourselves now to be able to say that, can we hold space for this man to express themselves? And, that also means that have we done adequate work on our own selves? Because I think when you get whole space for someone to express themselves, it's usually that you may have encountered all these emotions. So now when a person talks about their pain, right, you're not being triggered by it. And most of the time when we are when you hear people start to emotionally share stuff with us, right? Sometimes we shut them off very quickly because when they share their pain with us, sometimes it triggers our own pain. And sometimes we are we ourselves have pain that we have never resolved. But when someone shares the emotional experience with us, we're like, 
like F it, like shit. <laughs> it's like, we didn't realise that we have our own pain to deal with and now we end up listening to someone else's pain. So that, I think that's why people tend to say like, share your emotions, share emotions, but they don't realise sometimes that they have their own emotions that they have to actually deal with. Now, we move on to actually why you want to actually deal with grief. And uh, Susan Ford actually says this, you know, you go to great lengths to avoid appearing to feel sorry for yourself. You may even cheat yourself the right to feel the grief or losses of your childhood. Unless you have absolved your inner childhood through feelings and expressing anger and grief, you're just con- going to continue to punish yourself. And I think um, this may be sometimes apparent where, you know, people in their life encounter two multiple things in their childhood. And they actually say that it's very painful to them. But then again, they go through this habit of negating and saying that, you know, hey, don't think badly of my family. Don't think badly about my parents. No. It's like we still want the feeling that we don't want to put our family, our parents down. But at the same time, we are also trying on our own to deal with our emotions when it comes to our families and our parents as well. So it becomes like this weird like seesaw behavior where you're trying to deal with the things that have happened to you in your childhood, which is all your emotions that have been repressed. But at the same time, you don't want to feel like you have to betray your parents and your family by expressing emotions as well. So I think it's, it's a very interesting balance that someone goes through whenever they try to be honest about what has happened in the past, especially when it comes to their family and parents, because the last thing we, anybody would want to do is to shoot their parents or their family down. Because that is... We, we understand that these kind of issues are very complex sometimes with our own families and parents. And we still want to feel like no matter what happens, no matter what goes on in our personal world, that we still can go back to them and we still can have some sort of stability and familiarity with them as well. Now I go on to the end portion of this particular podcast episode and this reason of why actually I found this book very compelling was because the author Susan Forward actually said this, you know, she said up front like, I wish you had a happy childhood but I can't change the past for you. You need to make a major shift in your belief system about who's responsible for your pain of your childhood. This shift is essential because until you honestly assess who owns this responsibility, you always go through your life shouldering to blame yourself. And as long as you're blaming yourself, you'll suffer shame and self-hatred and you'll find ways to punish yourself. You must let go of responsibility for the painful events of your childhood and put it where it belongs. You're not responsible for the way your parents neglected or ignored you, the way they made you feel unloved or unlovable, you're not responsible for your parents' unhappiness. You're not responsible for your parents' problems. You're not responsible for your parents' choice not to do anything about their problems. And I see this um, this particular paragraph, I think, was very powerful in, in the sense that, seeing that um, unless you begin to do the work to examine their own fi- family dynamics and look at their parent-child relationship, right, sometimes you end up heaping a lot of these things that have happened and passed on yourself. So sometimes I think when people are doing the work to look at their childhood and their parent, parents' child relationship and also their family dynamic, they have to be willing to accept the fact that there are things that have happened to them. As a result, their parents may not be adequate to handle those things and unfortunately that had an impact on their childhood. Therefore, has created a lot of belief systems that now has their subconscious adopted. I think there is a, I think a balance between... Um, taking responsibility, but also taking too much responsibility that was never part of what you should be taking in the first place. That is your childhood as well. Um, so I think I end this podcast episode uh, with the thoughts that whenever I think we do the work 
to delve into our childhood and our family dynamics, right? It's going to unleash a lot of things that sometimes we may think like, oh, damn it, no. Maybe my life was better if I never had actually moved in this direction. If I never actually opened a can of worms and start to do my family, my family dynamic or my parent-child dynamic. But I think, I think it may be necessary work, but I think the payoff of this is that I think that in the future, you know, we can move forward as adults and, and realize that any belief system that we have, that we've inherited from the past through our childhood, right, we can choose to still either maintain it or we can choose to disengage and find better ways of better belief system. But it first comes with acknowledging what has happened in the past. So um, I basically hope that this podcast episode has brought you value. This book has certainly brought me value. And I think the large reason why I've always read books that was written by psychologists and therapists and counsellors is because I feel that they have an objective viewpoint into the human existence. They are observing a lot of things through their private practice and they are observing a lot of things of what is the common things that people get stuck in their life and how do they then use the tools in therapy to then help these people uh, on their journey to then uh, resolving those, those things and then lead lives that, uh, that now serve them going forward. So if you have any thoughts about this podcast episode or even if you've read the book before, you know, hit me up. I'm willing to you know, discuss about any different ideas that we may have.